0: Written on the pages of the Great Book of Nature lies a truth so profound that it has beckoned men and women throughout the ages to seek its wisdom. We will continue this quest and study many stories of humanity as we search for this light. On this journey, we will examine philosophy, religion, and science to uncover the hidden mysteries behind myth and legend using the symbols of universal Freemasonry Welcome to Legends of the Craft.
1: Welcome back to Legends of the Craft. I'm here with Brother Axel Savari, and today's topic is anarchism and Freemasonry. And this is a very special topic for both Brother Axel and I because we're self-professed anarchists. Now, don't get that wrong. Okay? We don't throw benches through windows, we don't light places on fire, we're not trying to beat down police officers all the time. This, the term anarchy, anarchism, anarchist uh, are words that usually uh, have been interpreted incorrectly by today's society, and this podcast is trying to correct that uh, by discussing and explaining the philosophical heritage of anarchism and its place in Freemasonry, because we believe that there is an intimate connection between Freemasonry, especially co-Masonry, and anarchism.
2: Yeah, there's definitely a place for the philosophy of anarchy within Freemasonry. And I think it's very timely that we do this podcast as uh, as anarchy and anarchists and anarchism are certainly getting a bad rap these days with all of the uh, the chaos going on in the world. Because really, that's, that's kind of the starting point, is that Anarchy, as a word, has been confused with chaos. The two, although they're used synonymously today, they don't mean the same thing. And I think that's where we should kind of start uh, as a jumping off point for this podcast is what is the word, where does it come from, and what does it actually mean? So if you go to the internet, go to Google, and look up the word
1: anarchy, uh, the definition that you'll find, let's say Webster's definition – Um, would be A, a state of society without government or law, B, political and social disorder due to the absence of government control, 3, anarchism, go back to definition A, D, lack of obedience to authority, insubordination, E, confusion
2: and disorder. So these definitions have resulted in a very bad rap. Terrible rap. Terrible. When you say the word anarchy, you're bringing up thoughts of chaos, disruption, turbulence, general disorganization, and disintegration. People can't conceptualize of anarchy as anything more than another word for chaos. But it is actually a very well-reasoned and well-thought-out political theory.
1: This kind of goes hand-in-hand with the... The sort of the ignorance you find today in modern society with a lot of concepts that go back thousands of years. Um, even though the information is all out there, I find people, uh, as they get older, less and less understand the works of Plato, Aristotle, um, Thomas Aquinas, Sir Thomas More, Locke, Hobbes, you know, all these great names. They may have heard of them, but they've never read their works. So, you know, they hear a word, Somebody says, well, that means chaos. Anarchy means chaos. And then they just, they're just they moving through life just believing that's the truth. They've never actually looked into it. And anybody that really wants to be competent in, in political theory, anarchy is a very important part. It goes all the way back to ancient Greece. And that's where the next level of analyzing what the word means comes from. So, Brother Axel, why don't you kind of tell us exactly what the word anarchy is? Because it's a Greek word. What does it mean?
2: So our word anarchy comes from uh, two Greek parts. One, the prefix an, meaning without or the absence of, and the noun archos, meaning chief, master, or ruler. So in es- essentially, it's Greek for no rulers or no masters. That's what the word actually means. It's just a state of being with no masters, no rulers. That doesn't mean
1: that there aren't laws, that there isn't society and civilization. It just means there's nobody over you. You know, if we want to get rid of slaves, you have to get rid of masters. It may be the slaves of old, you know, people chained up working on the fields. Or it could be today's sense of slaves, which is like indentured workers, you know, migrant workers, or people in, like, Chinese factories that supposedly don't have any rights and all that. So there's always been some sort of slavery on Earth. But to have a slave, you need a master. So anarchy says, well, the way we destroy the slave class You get rid of the masters.
2: Well, I think, you know, to to contextualize our discussion, we have to remember where like modern political anarchy comes from. Like there there have always been conceptions of of liberty and political philosophy, but to a limited extent. Anarchy is a political idea, kind of emerged in the middle of the 19th century, around the 1850s. And what we have to remember about that time that we don't experience now is that political systems back then, especially the monarchies and the theocracies that they were dealing with, they, they're based on this idea that the people are kind of owned by the government. It's, it's People didn't think of politics the way they do now, where we have like democracies and freedom and the idea of individual sovereignty and political systems. It was like you were a part of a nation and you kind of belonged to that state and the state had the power to tell you, you what to do. You are a resource. Exactly.
1: You know, you're like a piece of gold. Or a piece of equipment to the state.
2: So, so when we say no masters and no rulers, we're not really saying like no authority figures, no leaders. It's it's more of like nobody owns you.
1: Well, and that's the key right there. There's a difference between a leader and a ruler. An anarchist society can have leaders, but they don't have rulers because r- someone that rules. Kind of implies ownership. Well, a leader is somebody that's just guiding the people forward, and that kind of takes us into our next level here of bringing this back into Freemasonry. You know, the first thing I always hear about people that are that are against anarchy and and you know we we bring up this idea that it's very Masonic. They're like, oh, but you know you have masters in your lodge. Yes, the word master is there, but but a Masonic master, a right worshipful master, a worshipful master doesn't have any ownership. It's an ancient word, more referring to the spiritual master. You know, sort of a, sort of a, more of like a, a guide or a teacher.
2: An adept, somebody that's exactly. mastered something.
1: Not, not, the, not the masters of like political masters. So when we look at the the Masonic system, we have to realize right off the bat, you enter of your own free will and accord, and you can leave of your own free will and accord. Mm-hmm. Nobody binds you to masonry. It's very anarchistic that way. It, it's an organized system. It's extremely organized. It has a lot of rules. But you can come and you can go. Nobody can force you to stay or to leave. It's up to you. So you voluntarily enter the order. And and voluntary, the word voluntary is very key here because if you, if you want to actually make a synonymous word for anarchy, it's volunteerism. It's that we need it to make a society that you volunteer for all the things that you're a part of. And this is what we believe in Freemasonry. And I believe... Masonry is trying to spread this idea to the four corners of the globe. That look, you can't make people do things they don't want to do, unless they are harming people.
2: Absolutely. Well, I think that um, I think you make a very interesting distinction there. Um, the the idea of like the the synonym volunteerism or voluntarism. Anarchy, as a word, is kind of a negative definition of the philosophy, without masters. It's, it's what, is, what anarchy isn't. It's without masters. What anarchy is, in a positive sense, is volunteerism. It's, it's a political system that advocates the idea that all human decisions and all human interactions and relationships should be undertaken voluntarily. That everything that you do should be because you choose to do it. And that a political system that is founded on the opposite of that, of forcing people to do things, is not only not practical and ineffective, but it's immoral. It's immoral to tell people what to do. And, you know, if we think about it, like in our day-to-day lives, we all live like this. We Nobody would accept, like, somebody coming into their life that they didn't know and telling them how to live their life. Like, put your foot there, put your foot here, drive here, do this. Like, nobody would accept that unless they consider the state. But they don't really consider it, and that's why we they kind of gets away with it. But we'll get into that later. Why we, don't you – Well, just real quick. Like, I think to some degree, you know, people today are just as
1: brainwashed as they were 400 500 years ago. You know, we look at medieval Europe and think those people were so ignorant. I mean, I don't think – the, the vast majority of people are necessarily less ignorant. I mean, they are they can read and write. They're better enabled. Technology's better. Life is better. But they're just as disinterested in what's going on around them. And so I think there, you know, people still today look at the state the way they looked at the state 500 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. back then there was a king. Now there's a president. In both cases, there's a state. And in both instances, they believe the state is essential to their survival. And th- and that's the key. There's, there's this, in my opinion, there's a bit of propaganda here where it's like, well, if you don't have a state, you're going to have chaos. You're going to have people just killing each other, and it's going to be crazy.
2: Well, that's the really interesting thing about anarchy is like, in, a, in an anarchistic society, the very same system that we have now could exist except for one thing. There's no coercion at the foundation of it. You could not participate. Like, you could still have a president. You could have an executive branch, a legislative branch. You could, you could have a congress. You could, you could do all these things. The only thing that's missing in an anarchistic society is the coercion. And by coercion, I mean like the ability of the political system to force people to do something. Uh, there's a famous anarchist, uh, saying that at the end of every law is the barrel of a gun. Like, every law is enforced. We're all familiar with the term enforce, and that means to force it upon people. And that's the 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 key difference, both the voluntary nature of human interaction and the lack of coercion. Those are the two define to me, the two defining elements of an anarchist society. So let's let's
1: get more into the particulars of this society, like what are the major points? Because there's some different types of anarchism, and we certainly need to get into those concepts. So anarchism is a political philosophy and its movements throughout the world, which rejects involuntary coercive forms of authority. It radically calls for the abolition of the state, which it holds to be undesirable, unnecessary, and harmful. So here's kind of some points, uh, bullet points of of what most anarchists would agree to. Um, Non-coercive society is the key. To anarchy. You cannot be in a place that that barrel of the gun is put to your head to make you do things. It rejects the as a second point. It rejects the state apparatus. It does not believe that you need a massive bureaucracy in order to ensure security. Um, as a third point, there's this belief that human nature allows uh, us as, as human beings to exist or progress towards this type of society. And this is a real key point. It's, it's saying that humans are inherently sort of good.
2: Mm-hmm. At least most of them and, are. And liberty-minded. And
1: liberty-minded. And they, they kind of want to be left alone to do their own thing. And that even if we're not 100% ready for it, we can at least work to this. This mm-hmm. is something that we can achieve. And this is a really important point here for a second reason. The reason anarchists reject Marxism that they reject communism is because Karl Marx in 1848 in his communist manifesto called for a worldwide revolution, that the, that the workers should overthrow the people that own the means of production. And by doing so, they could seize that and they should spread this throughout the world. But that, that's very violent. The anarchist believes that anything that you do through, through violence will only lead to more violence. So yeah, you could overthrow the state in a revolution, but then the new leaders of that state will start oppressing the people as did the the old regime. So the old regime and the new regime is the same. So they believe that we must gradually remove the state. So as we expand, as we get more evolved, as our consciousness expands, the state will become less and less important. So there's this gradual and evolutionary trend towards anarchy. And I think this is very responsible this is very intelligent. It's like, no, we can't do this overnight. Mm-hmm. But this is a goal to be achieved in the future. And if you use violence, you will fail. It has to be done because everybody wants to do it. So that's you know the the the, the time old questions like, well, in communism, how do you get everybody to agree? Well, through the barrel of a gun. Mm-hmm. How does anarchy works? Well, we finally come to the consensus of you know, let us each do our own unless we harm one another.
2: Well, you know, it's it's interesting on an individual level, the same evolution is kind of undergone by every individual anarchist. Um, because it, you, you kind of, it's very, very rare that you kind of start your life as an anarchist, that you're like raised by anarchist parents, and you get this ideology early in life, and you believe it from from the word go. That's, almost has never happened. There is always like some level of cultural conditioning that has to be broken down because there's every culture throughout the world. Every political system is based on coercion and force like that. That's how governments are maintained is through force. So there's always kind of a process of Mm -hmm. evolving your way into anarchism. But what's really interesting is that it's kind of it's parabolic. Like once you reach the bottom where anarchy is and and you and you kind of come to this idea that everything should be voluntary, you, you kind of start working your way back up to realizing that this is an evolutionary process and people are not going to just jump into freedom overnight. That we're going to have to take like, you know, what, can, what moves us in a gradual way towards freedom? And certainly no individual is really ever gonna see that. They can only work towards that. But this, this goal, this, this utopian idea of real human freedom is definitely a long way off from here.
1: That's a great point brother Axel and I think that leads us into point number 4 which is natural law which is politics in general the rules of it are determined by nature this kind of goes back into our stoic podcast uh, last episode where we were talking about how the stoics view that that we can infer truth from nature mm-hmm. so when you read things like you know man uh, has been endowed with unalienable rights that's a very anarchistic comments saying that we are all endowed by something much higher than us and in that uh, no other man can rule over us mm-hmm. and be a master over us so natural law is very key and and I think that leads to the your, your point on the gradualism that you know just as we have evolved from more uh, primitive states of, of you know of our of our DNA and our biology so do po- does political theory and political consciousness, have to evolve to the point of anarchy.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and our final point, this rejection, tyranny, superstition, and bigotry, these are all things that have to be engaged in over like an evolutionary time scale. They might be um, kind of like surmounted by individuals or small communities in one time or place, but really like the anarchist view is that it's only with the the gradual building up of these attitudes that things can really change. Because like you said, like no anarchist believes that they can force anybody to believe in freedom. That's just, that's not how it works. And that's how kind of every political philosophy has been justified. If, if only we can force enough people to do it this way, everything will be perfect.
1: So your the final point you brought up of the rejection of tyranny, superstition, and bigotry. I think that those three point to, what anarchists would look as the state, the church, and the mob. Mm -hmm. So the tyranny of the state is rejected by an anarchist. The superstition... And spiritual tyranny of the church is rejected. They're not atheists, though many anarchists have been atheists. But there are many anarchists that are very religious. Mm-hmm. Their point is separation of church and state. Church and state should have no, the church should have no power to tell you how to live your life. They should be a volunteer organization, mm-hmm. uh, much how we find it today, but not hundreds of years ago, where the church was in control of the state apparatus. And finally, the mob. The mob is also a very dangerous thing. You get this mob mentality. And suddenly it's wanting to do harm to those it does not agree with. Mm. Uh, so anarchy rejects these, these th- three tyrants, these, these three enemies of freedom, and it sees them all as liabilities towards this eventual goal of each person being their own
2: ruler. Well, it's essentially ignorance, ambition, and fanaticism, right? Those three elements. Exactly. Like, I think it's worth it. Like looking back, like any Mason who's listening to this will look back at those five points and immediately see their application to masonry. So why don't we look at these five points specifically from a Masonic context, like the first one, the will for a non-coercive society. I mean, that's the free nature of Freemasonry. That's where the free comes to Freemasonry. Like everybody must (laughs) enter masonry of their own free will and accord. That is the foundational belief of Freemasonry is that nobody can be initiated. Nobody can be made a Mason if they are under the solicitation of their friends under improper influences under you know the desire to gain something from them for themselves they have to enter freely into into the unknown like it's an unknown system you you're and, not open to it yeah
1: and its mysteries can't be imparted by force its mysteries must be imparted through self-education by turning the rough ashlar into a perfect ashlar by using the working tools upon yourself, and you can't use those working tools on other people. like this whole idea of masonry that you can only you can only really help yourself. I mean, you can help your your fellow masons, but you can't force them to change their mind. You can't just make them perfect. They must make themselves perfect. You know, our ashlers may rub against each other. That that friction may help us evolve, but ultimately. This non of society of Freemasonry is like each must perfect their own stone.
2: Well, it's often said too that you, you'll get out of Freemasonry what you are willing to put into it. It's like whatever efforts you bring to Freemasonry is what Freemasonry will give back to you. Mm-hmm. Freemasonry can't force itself on you it is it is not an authority figure it's not your parents it cannot impart anything to you without you being willing and open to freely approach its mysteries and and to give of yourself like that's the only way this works it's it is a reciprocal relationship but you have to freely do it it cannot be it literally cannot be forced on you
1: the second point which is the rejection of the state apparatus it's very apparent in freemasonry you know the craft does not uh, side with one political party or another. It doesn't advocate uh, changes of policy in society. Yes, it speaks about, in generality, liberty, equality, fraternity, but it does not actually use the state to try to advance mm-hmm. the human cause, the human right. It uses people voluntarily come together in communion, doing ritual working with one another, educating one another, talking about philosophy and debating. So, in you know, in a very indirect way, I guess we could say masonry completely rejects the state apparatus. It it doesn't support any state. Mm-hmm. In fact, it is global. And especially in the 17th and 18th century, masons were more tied to their lodges than to their nations. Mm-hmm. So, masonry crossed over borders and it was above your national ties. So, in many ways, Masonry, not directly because it's smart, because it made direct references to uh, being against the state. Uh, well, that's it, it, what it's
2: often accused yeah. of, right?
1: And and, and and going back to other podcasts where we discuss totalitarianism, first thing they try to do in, in fascist states and communist states is to shut down Masonic lodges because, for the very reasons that we just stated, You know, they believe that masonry will be be used to bring down the state apparatus. Mm -hmm. So uh, that is a whole different podcast right there. (laughs) But I think clearly masonry does not advocate government. It advocates that the changes need to be made on a local level between people.
2: Well, if you think about a society that works to the glory of God, how can that be under the subjugation of national influence? It has to be beyond. It has to be supranational. Like there's no way that we can venerate the highest by using systems that are imperfectly designed by man like that's not the highest the highest is nature the highest is god or the supreme power however you want to conceptualize it like there's something that is beyond all human systems so if we're going to say if if freemasonry is going to you know lift one human system over another and say this is the truth well it's inherently flawed from mm-hmm. from the beginning yeah. it has to go it has to come from a place that is beyond all of that Otherwise, it's meaningless when it's applied to those systems because it's, it's stuck in the trenches of one or another. Point number three, the belief that
1: human nature allows humans to exist in or progress towards a non-coercive society or an anarchist society. This is also very Masonic. This is the perfection of humanity. This is literally motto number one for our organization. It's basically saying that we are working towards this perfection. Now, can we achieve it? It makes you never says it's possible or impossible, but that's sort of irrelevant. It's saying that that's what we're doing. We're, move, we're, we're working towards a more perfect union, mm-hmm. uh, as the American Constitution would say. This is our motto. We can do it. It is possible for us to evolve, to overcome our differences, to, to defeat the superstitions and the tyrannies of our past, and to move towards this perfection. So I think this point number three ties directly into the general motto of Freemasonry.
2: Well, I think that's what Freemasonry is trying to be an example of, as a non-coercive society. It's a society of men and women, in the case of universal co in which participation is voluntary. Uh, obedience is voluntary, everything in Freemasonry is the result of voluntary human interactions in a system of rules, of legislation, of authority. I mean, there are leaders, there are officers in a Masonic Lodge, there is a hierarchical structure in which commands are given and obeyed, but everything is done voluntarily. Nobody's kept against their will. There are taxes within Freemasonry. There are contributions towards a greater economic whole every single one of them people pay dues people pay dues of their own free will and accord because the moment you don't
1: want to do it you can walk away and it's okay no one's going to hold the barrel of a gun to your head
2: it is a fully functioning non-coercive society and it, it it now it can only exist in small groups but as the light of freemasonry spreads perhaps these groups can get larger more lodges will start more examples more um points around which to cohere The more of that that can exist, the more voluntary the society becomes, because there are more voluntary societies within it.
1: Point number four is the belief in natural law. This goes to the second part of the motto, of uh, in generality of Freemasonry, which is, uh, you know, we have working to the glory of the Great Architect of the Universe and to the perfection of humanity. So, point number three is, it's we, we can work towards perfection. But this point number four, this natural law, is to the glory of God. And this is where uh, people may get confused, but this is not necessarily the concept of a Christian God. Um, you know, really, I think when you look at 17th and 18th century masonry, it's far more deistic, where they're looking at God as the clockmaker that put everything to motion. Mm-hmm. It's the one, God is the one that created nature and the rules of nature. So working to the glory of God is working according to the, trace, the tracing board of nature. Um, it's following the plan of nature. And so, masonry is telling us to look to nature, to be guided by nature, and that is the glory of God because He has created this plan, this tracing board for us to follow. And finally, number five—I know it's your favorite, brother Axel—the <laughs> rejection of tyranny, superstition, and bigotry.
2: What do you think we find in these three? It's ignorance, ambition, and fanaticism—the three great ruffians against which Freemasonry is standing. Is it that these are our enemies? Freemasonry has enemies. I, I've made this point on the podcast before, but like, we have a fight going on. We're not neutral in the, in the battles of history, so to speak. I mean, and in, I mean, ideologically speaking, I'm not talking about conflicts between states as, you know, I'm not a fan of conflicts between states, but Freemasonry has recognized that there are things that are detrimental to humanity ignorance, ambition, and fanaticism. There, there are three great enemies that we face. And these are the same things that prevent us from forming a non-coercive society. Ignorance, people's political ambition to wield power, and the fanaticism of both church and state. People can be fanatical about their religions and their governments. The, the 20th century alone is filled with examples of this. Like These are the things that we fight against. The state, the church, and the
1: mob. And these three are coercive in nature. Like The way they apply their changes or their demands is by force. And so we have to be very wary of these three and not allow them to take hold, because when they do, then we have tyranny. We have the lack of freedom, the lack of liberties, and that takes us a step backwards in our evolution. So I think I think we should move on from these five points, but... Uh, I agree, with Brother Axel. Like it's, it's the three Ruffians. It's, this is the story in the third degree. It's further illustrated in the ninth degree, in the tenth degree of the Scottish Rite, of the fourteenth degree, of the thirtieth degree of the Scottish Rite. Like a lot of the higher degrees, really are focusing in more particular manners of the of the real struggle that you find in the legend of the third degree, and it's it's all about volunteerism, you know. Our grandmaster Hiram Abiff, I mean, his entire story is how he voluntarily sacrifices himself for the good of all. It's he's not forced to do anything. Everything that he does is because he's chosen to do it because he believes it to be right. In many ways, he's the chief anarchist. You know, he's the exemplar of anarchism. He's like, no, I will live a life according to my values and I will die upon those values. I have to I'm not gonna seek death. But I will die in the defense of what I believe. It's the same story of Socrates, Seneca, Sir Thomas More, Jack D. Molay. All the great heroes of humanity are people that they would rather suffer death than betray the trust reposed in them.
2: So as we move on, I I think it's important as we go next, like there are many examples of anarchy in in Freemasonry, but... Not so many that are immediately apparent in in like the so-called real world. Like whenever, I'm sure you have plenty of experience with this, as I do, whenever you bring up these ideas, what's the first thing that you hear? Oh, that's not possible. Who's going to build the roads? Who's going to <laughs> Who's going to build my roads? Yeah, it's always the roads. It's it's know? always the roads. But like but nobody can kind of conceptualize this because there are not easy historical examples of this, which I think for good reason from the state perspective as to why they might not want people to hear about historical accounts of anarchy, but there are accounts of anarchistic systems arising in human history. I mean, if we look back to um pre-agricultural societies, they weren't governed by kings and chieftains that held on to their power through the divine right of kings. I mean, if you look at um, serious anthropological analysis of pre-agricultural society, leadership was a temporary thing. If you wanted to um, go out hunting, for example, well, you'd pick the best hunter in your group and you'd follow him for the duration of the hunt. If you wanted to build some housing, well, you'd go find the best builder in your tribe and say, hey, how do we build the best houses? And you'd follow him for a time.
1: Yeah, and the, and the chieftain would typically be maybe the eldest or the wisest person in the group. And there was a consensus. The groups were small enough that if if you were the leader, you couldn't maintain it by force. You were chief because you were well-respected. You were the leader. You were not a ruler. You were a leader. And you were there because you had accomplished some great task. You, know, you had gained the inspiration of the people today that doesn't exist the people that rule over us are in distant lands they're over in Washington DC London Paris and the capitals very detached from the populace and even and
2: certainly not the wisest and no. most experienced among us and
1: if they're not popular they stay in power because you know we don't have revolutions being thrown but in a small tribe you I mean you mess up you take advantage of the trust that's been given to you you're down
2: in the same way Masonic Lodges operate. Uh, Masters are elected for a certain term, and they're elected because they're qualified, not because it's, well, at least in our order, not because it's their turn in the chair. It's because they have demonstrated that they actually live up to the principles and philosophies of masonry and that they're worthy of the trust of the lodge in terms of executing its work. The, The members of the lodge actually come together and say, we think that you can actually fulfill the purpose of this lodge, so we'll give you this power for this certain amount of time. If we look at ancient China, brother Axel,
1: there's a lot of philosophical anarchism there. Look at Lao Tzu, you know, the, the Tao Te Ching. Like, it's a very anarchistic book, and he's considered to be one of the earliest anarchists. Now, he didn't he didn't have this term. This is a Greek word, so mm-hmm. he he wasn't labeled this way by by himself or by his followers. But when you look at his critique of the state, he's basically saying that we don't need it as much as everybody thinks. Like. You know, when you read the Tao Te Ching, it's very clearly saying, like, the real leader is the one that the people doesn't know is there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the leader that wields power is one that does so because he's loved or because he has experience. And so it's, it's a very contradictory text, but at the same time, that text very clearly shows, like, you don't need force. It's balance that leads you to progress and efficiency,
2: well, and just uh, as a side note, the I Ching, not the Tao Te Ching, but the I Ching, mm-hmm. is actually the story of a tyrant and the man trying to usurp him as as a as a good mm. leader. That's actually like all those little stories in there are actually a story between tyranny and freedom. In Greek, we come to Greece. You know, a lot of people think this is a modern philosophy. It's a Greek word, and there were Greek anarchists. Maybe they didn't call themselves anarchists, but I mean Socrates constantly questioning the Athenian authorities. Athens itself, the the story of Athenian democracy is a story of of involved citizens who believe that the government should descend from virtues, from the practice of virtues. That that government is kind of a second order consequence to a life well lived. That's where we have the the first um, the four classical virtues of uh, temperance, prudence, justice, Fort and fortitude. fortitude. Like that's where this emerges, this idea that. Virtuous people can create a virtuous government, but government cannot create virtuous people.
1: Don't forget the cynics. I mean, they completely dismissed human law. You know, like they, they, they just thought it, you know, they were cynics. You know, So they're like, none of, this, none of this stuff is very good for us. It doesn't work. And they're very cynical about the application of law. So, I mean, this word really comes to a forefront. And there are periods of anarchy uh, in, in Athenian
2: history. In Rome, we have the Stoics. And obviously, the most famous Stoic is Marcus Aurelius, emperor of Rome, possibly one of the most status kind of institutions to have ever existed was the Roman Empire. But if we actually look at the writing, like, government, again, to the Stoics, is kind of something that's a consequence of of virtuous living. It's not something that is good in and of itself, but that is made good by good men and good women, but well, they didn't think y- that. I mean, I mean, to your point there, like,
1: Going back to our podcast on Stoicism, you know, the real Stoic subdues his passions. He subdues the suffering in his life and he uh, becomes more virtuous. So there's that idea of the gradualism in anarchy, which, you know, people all learn to subdue their passions and to increase themselves in, in, in virtue then we can achieve this anarchistic state because everyone living in it is virtuous. They're, they recognize their flaws. They, they subdue those passions that make them act irrationally and try to force people to do things. So Stoicism is not so much... Uh, a description of what anarchy could be. It's a description of how to get to anarchy.
2: Exactly. And if you look, you know, what happened to the Roman Empire after Marcus Aurelius, the last of the uh, the five good emperors, you had emperors who took that seat of power, who didn't do the work of, of subduing their passions and subjugating themselves to the idea of virtue. And what do you have? You have this massive state apparatus that all becomes directed to satisfying the appetites of one man or, or perhaps a circle of men who are just, just kind of enter into this downward spiral of degeneration and depravity that results in the complete dissolution of the Roman Empire because people became selfish. They became kind of wrapped up in these vices and, and the leaders were not trying to move the gradual evolution toward a state of freedom, but to consolidate power to protect themselves from the mob that they were angering. Fast forward to the, you know,
1: the Age of Enlightenment or, you know, the, the High Renaissance. Uh, you have philosophers discussing uh, anarchistic type ideas. And, and one of them, a very prominent German philosopher is Immanuel Kant. And, you know, he, he's more of a pragmatist. So, you know, he, he made the following sort of like identification of, of, four, of four types of government. You know, the first is law and freedom without force. That would be anarchy. Uh, law and force without freedom that's despotism or, or tyranny force without freedom and law it's just barbarism to him and force with freedom and law that's the republic mm-hmm. which is obviously the form of government that he appreciated and was uh, condoning to the people um, so he you know he's basically saying you know anarchy is a, is a nice idea but without force it's it's just can be in people's imagination. We can never accomplish this. Well,
2: and I think writing at his time, I can see why he would think that. Like Europe had just kind of emerged from, well, it was still in the throes of a series of wars that had plagued it really since the fall of the Roman Empire. I can can completely understand why a European writing at that time would think that law and freedom could not exist without some application of force. I do think it's interesting that he identifies these three kind of forces as holding a society together. In the same way that Freemasonry I mean, not these three, but recognizes three forces in wisdom, strength, and beauty as being the components that hold together a voluntary society. It's interesting to me that he he recognizes law, force, and freedom as holding together a non voluntary yeah. society. Yeah, I mean,
1: I reject this idea that you know because he's saying law, freedom, and force, and he, he's he's distributing these differently in order to say anarchy, despotism, barbarism, or the republic. He's associating force with strength. in in masonically speaking but i i I don't believe that's the case uh i i would say the strength of a society is its virtue so i would i would i would replace those with law freedom and virtue not law
2: freedom and force because virtue is what would allow such a society to exist Exist in the absence of force like i I, that's really i mean virtue solves all problems exactly yeah whereas force can only solve them To a certain extent.
1: You can't legislate morality. And that's a very big point to the anarchists. Mm -hmm. Laws do not make people better. You know, laws against um, prostitution, you know, prohibition of alcohol or drugs, people still do them. And they actually do them worse. I mean, statistically showing when you make something legal, when you make it free uh, for people to do, uh, then those vices actually decrease over Mm -hmm. time because the taboo nature of them disappears. Their
2: attraction kind of diminishes. So with... With the French Revolution, we really
1: start to see anarchy emerge as an an idea that will be attempted by the people, Um, not necessarily just in the French Revolution, but in the revolutions of 1848. Uh, You have the uh, Paris Commune of 1871, which was an actual experiment in anarchy that we should discuss here, and it definitely influenced co-masonry. But the French, um, in the rejection of nobility, um, many prominent philosophers... Uh, from um, Mark Stirner to Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. They all had these ideas that we can achieve in, in, in their age. They, they could achieve this sort of anarchistic state. The problem with the French Revolution itself is that Uh, In their attempt to create sort of an anarchy, they ended up murdering 30,000 people in the terror. I mean, the guillotine was just slicing people, including slicing up their own leaders, you know, (laughs) Robespierre, Danton, all these people that wanted to basically kill out all the unvirtuous. They thought at that time, because they they were so obsessed with what they had discovered scientifically and philosophically, that if you just kill all the bad people well, there'll be no more badness because that's just in those people's heart and they're sort of letting, they're giving it to the people, uh, to their kids when they have them. Just kill them off. So, you just guillotine all the bad people and you're left with the good people. It's, it, it's actually quite insane, that concept. It's very
2: totalitarian. You know, just, just as a side note, like my answer to the question, who's going to build the roads in an anarchist society, would be well, who's going to operate the guillotines? Because we're not going to have terrors where people are chopping off 30,000 heads in a non coercive society.
1: But I think before we, we get – we're going to dive a lot into Proudhon because he was a Freemason and he's he's the first one to actually call himself an anarchist in the modern age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he, I think, influences Freemasonry a lot. But before we get into him, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, – sort of the, the Karl Marx flavor of anarchy, communism, because there is a tie there.
2: So there's an interesting kind of development at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, really was as Marxism starts to pick up steam, you had this idea of collectivist anarchism. So the, the Russian political philosopher Mikhail Bakunin starts collectivist anarchism, which kind of draws from the principles of Marxism and this idea of um, eliminating like, like, Bakunin saw the masters in the No Masters of Anarchy as uh, international capital, the people that owned the means of production. And to contextualize that a little bit, you're talking about Europe that has kind of just starting to come out of the most brutal phases of the industrial revolution, which really was brutal, like factory labor for 14 hours a day, where whole families are working in what is essentially indentured slavery to these proto-corporations. Like, I can start to see why you would think that those are the masters that need to be undone. So you, you have this kind of emergence of... Marxist anarchism um, but even within that there's even, like in, in any kind of you know communist organization there's going to be many schisms and there's a force that kind of think that Marx's state socialism the idea that you need to create a socialist state to usher in utopian kind of communism which really is a description of an anarchist society um, they they were like nah dude you're just creating another state and that's just going to lead <laughs> to more statism And what's interesting is this flavor of anarchy kind of informs a reaction to it uh, where you get the individualist anarchism that really starts to develop in America around the same time where it's like, no, anarchy means freedom from everything. Like, just don't tread on me. Leave me alone. Let me do what I want. Um, which you have like Lysander Spooner, and later on the Austrian school kind of informing Murray Rothbard into the later twentieth century. So right there, there's kind of a split in anarchy between individualist and collectivist anarchy.
1: Another way to put that, brother Axel, is you basically have sort of a right wing and left wing anarchy. So American anarchism with Lysander Spooner and Benjamin Tucker, this is um, kind of rural anarchy because there's not a lot of people in america so they're like basically it's a philosophy of leave me alone don't tell me what to do and mm. i won't bother you yeah uh left-wing anarchy which is the philosophy of proudhon and all these guys in europe they're dealing with a lot of urban sites you know they're in paris they're in berlin they're in frankfurt they're in london so their experience is very different than the americas where there's a lot of land people can be left alone in paris You got a lot of people jam-packed together, right? So the anarchy took this different approach, which is how do we free the people, but we're all living on top of each other. You know, you can't just go out to the countryside and uh, make a farm and be left alone.
2: Mm -hmm. So on that note, uh, a lot of forms of anarchism have emerged since its uh, philosophical inception in the 19th century. There's a million flavors of anarchism, but we've we've chosen six or seven of kind of the most influential, the most popular. Uh, why don't we go through this list and, and kind of explain how anarchy is manifested now? So starting with egoist anarchism. Uh, this is uh, this is a creation of the philosopher Max Stirner. Uh, it's usually called egoism. It rejects devotion to a great idea or a cause, a doctrine, a system. Uh, it says that basically egoism has no political calling, but rather just to live yourself out is the highest aim uh, without any regard to how well or ill humanity may fare thereby. And this is kind of like the most like, the most pure idea of anarchism in a very like technical sense of like, like completely leave me alone. I have no attachment to the rest of humanity. I will live myself out. So, so to speak and just die completely free of any influence whatsoever. I I
1: kind of find this, this movement a little ignorant and erroneous. Uh, it it wasn't like it's, you know, anarchy is a fringe idea, but this mm. is a fringe idea within a fringe idea. <laughs> yeah. It's the, fringe, it's of the fringe of the fringe. It's the fringe of the fringe. But a key note here is that people that have read Ayn Rand or mm. like the works of Ayn Rand, uh, she got a lot of inspiration from Max Stirner. So her idea, yep. the, the virtue of selfishness... This, her objectivism is this idea that you should just do what you need to do and not worry about the people you are not your brother's keeper as she would say
2: it's a very reptilian form of anarchy it's just yeah. kind of like you know get off my my basking rock and leave me alone don't try to influence me whatsoever um it, it's a very it's a very kind of weird development for me in the in the in the uh, the kind of philosophies of anarchy. I, I certainly wouldn't want to live this way.
1: Um, the, our next form of, of anarchy is anarcho-feminism, um, and it's a, it's a tendency to combine anarchism with feminism. Um, it views the patriarchy as a manifestation of involuntary coercion. Uh, it's a hierarchy that, that's keeping down women throughout the world. And they don't advocate destroying the patriarchy. They believe in decentralizing the patriarchy. And this, this concept of decentralization, we're gonna talk, we're actually gonna focus probably the latter half of this podcast on decentralization. So let's not get into that right now. Uh, but it, it basically states that there is a struggle between men and women in which men have been in control. And a lot of this comes right out of the 19th century. Uh, uh, Louis Michel, who is a prominent anarchist and a member of La Joie Humaine and a co-Mason, um, she believed that the patriarchy should be decentralized their power should be reduced and the power of women increased so that both had equal power, Mm -hmm. that there was sort of a mutual agreement there. Because in her time, women weren't taken seriously in in France. And she had to do a lot of crazy things to get the attention of men, Mm -hmm. which she accomplished uh, by partaking in the the commune of Paris of
2: 1871. Our next one is anarcho-primitivism. This is one of the funnier flavors of, of anarchy to me personally. It's, it's, I mean, I, I do believe in it, but it, it, can, it can be a little silly. I certainly understand where they're coming from. So anarcho-primitivism uh, basically criticizes all of civilization, not just Western uh, civilization or patriarchal civilization, but the idea of civilization itself, they believe is an assault on the human character. Um So really, they're they're the the proto-anarchists that kind of want to return to a pre-agricultural society where there's the kind of leadership that we were talking about before that's conditional and temporary. Um, And basically, their idea is that all forms of oppression have arisen out of agricultural civilization. The idea that once human Mm -hmm. beings settle, they inevitably form systems of oppression and authority that only cause harm.
1: Unbeknownst to so many people... Uh, When they're like, oh, we need to return back to nature. We got to get out of the cities. It's actually a very anarcho-primitivist sort of point Mm -hmm. of view. I know they're not aware of that, but that's essentially the concept. Like, we need to get out of these cities. We need to go back to Earth. We need to do a little grounding. You know, we need to connect back with with Mother Earth.
2: But they basically... The Stone Age is like the ideal era of, humans, of human development for the anarcho-primitivist. I mean,
1: Brother Axel, I'm not an anarcho-primitivist. I, I understand what they're saying, and I think there's some metaphoric truth to it, but I like showers. I like, I like refrigeration. I like electrical I lights. like airplanes. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. This is
2: not the anarchy for me.
1: So this the next form of anarchy is kind of pivots on primitivism, which is anarcho-naturalism. Uh, and this is an idea that... It's not said that we need to abandon civilization, but civilization, um, we need to have some very refined ideas like vegetarianism because they're discussing this idea of of coercion. And they're like, well, having all these farms with animals and slaughtering them for our profit is a different form of coercion, which I can see their point Mm -hmm. of view, frankly. They advocate free love. They believe in, like, you know, like eco-villages, like, you know, earth ships. Uh, you know, ha- making these homes out of things that will last forever that, that don't degrade you because of their artificial nature. Uh, a lot of nudist colonies could be said to be anarcho-naturalists. Um, and basically, they're just avoiding in, in, in its totality all sort of artificial modern life. Mm-hmm. Hey. So so what's that group of people that, uh, what is it, um... They reject technology. I forgot their names.
2: The Amish.
1: The Amish. The Amish could could, could be said to be sort of anarcho naturalists.
2: Well, they certainly the, the Amish certainly don't. Uh, they reject the state apparatus for sure. Um, and that kind of leads us into our next flavor of Christian anarchism. Um, this is this is an interesting development in anarchy because if you actually go into um, the theology of Christianity, there is a very strong argument that Jesus could be seen as an anarchist, an anarchist philosopher. Uh, I'm thinking of that very famous story where I, th- I think it's the, uh, um, the Pharisees are trying to trip him up into, into basically supporting Rome. And, and they're talking about these coins that his followers are using. And they're like, hey, what's on that coin? You know, that coin that you're using, uh, where did that come from? And, and Jesus, you know, sees like, well, Caesar's head is on this coin. And, um, it's, it's basically trying to trick him into supporting the payment of taxes to the Roman Empire. And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. I will render unto God what is God's. Basically, the idea is like, yeah, you can, you can play with your government tokens all you want. I'm interested in manifesting the kingdom of heaven on earth. Now, you want to render unto Caesar? Go ahead, render unto Caesar. Give him back his coins. I have no need of these coins. And so, There's this development of Christian anarchism, which is grounded in the belief that there's only one source of authority to which Christians are ultimately answerable, which is God. Like, everything else is secondary. If the laws of man, if the states of man agree with the laws of God, then we'll go along with those laws. If they do not, well, our true obedience is to God and not to the state. Well, there's two
1: points to this. If you look at the modern Christian, um, the evangelical Christian, you know... Uh, Christianity at least in North America since the 1980s there's been a real push to use political means to achieve uh, their own liberties and by pushing their agenda be it abortion be it any sort of virtual you know virtuous laws they believe that will that will make this more of a Christian nation but this this nation was not a Christian nation you know America was built more on deist and masonic principles than it was on on Christian principles Um, but if you look at Christianity 1,500 years ago, the early Christians that were martyring themselves in the Colosseums, mm-hmm. those are anarchists. They, they didn't care about the state at all. They thought the state was irrelevant. They lived for God, so if they died because the state was persecuting them, so be it. All the apostles end up being martyred in one way or another because they're preaching the good word, mm-hmm. the gospel, yeah. and then the, and then they're either hung or burned or you know tied up to a crucifix to die it doesn't matter to them because they only report to God. So the state apparatus is irrelevant to them. The second part of of Christian anarchism actually comes out of Judaism. So when you look at this period in the Bible um, where there were no kings, it's called judges. There was these judges. There was these sort of like leaders that were leading uh, the various uh, Jewish populations before Israel was created. And these these judges were put in charge because of their skills because they were respected. and a very important Masonic figure in that is Jephthah and that kind of leads to this greater Christian concept of there's only the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. When Israel's formed, there's there was a lot of people that believed that that was not to be the case. and even to this day there are groups of, of Jews that believed Israel, should never have been created that that's actual sin that's not the will of god
2: well it's interesting too if you look at the jewish diaspora it is kind of a stateless society that owes its allegiance to kind of the ideals and philosophies of Judaism rather than to whatever government. This is kind of why they're able to integrate across the world in any society they find themselves in because they're not attached to one political philosophy or, or, or,
1: or a single rabbi. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's an excellent point, brother Axel, like Judaism up until this moment without the, the the state of Israel is a complete experiment in anarchy dispersed throughout the world without central leaders or apparatuses. They maintain the ideas of their religion Within the societies and they sort of blend in and they cope with it and they, they try not to get persecuted. Um, so they're not trying to step on anybody's toes, per say. So it's, a, it's actually it's it's they're like many anarchist states mm-hmm. trying to survive in exile.
2: Almost, almost like Masonic lodges in a way that there there's a set of uh, laws and philosophies that are higher than whatever uh, man-made restrictions may be imposed on a lodge because of its geography. This is the landmarks of
1: Freemasonry. It's those unwritten rules that we have that make us Masons. And whether you're in the East or the West, the North and the South, whether you're speaking Spanish, Portuguese, um, Mandarin, it doesn't really make a difference. Like Masonry has an internal heart that doesn't, you don't need a central authority. That's why there's so many Masonic orders. Mm. There's no Pope of Freemasonry, there's no King of Freemasonry. There's all these independent cells operating on these very similar principles that have been passed down through time. And so, yeah, lodges as well as the Jews in exile uh, from the diaspora are are living sort of an anarchist life. You know, they're they're, they're coping with the existence of a state, mm-hmm. but that's not what's guiding us and that's not really what's important to us. We, we really have our own rules and our own way of doing things.
2: So that leads us to our last flavor of anarchy that we're going to talk about here, which is free market anarchism which is basically uh, the idea that anarchism needs an economic system based on voluntary market interactions. And that really the foundation of society is these kind of freely Entered into market interactions that that's what society actually is. It's not the state. It's not governments It's not nations It's the marketplace in which human beings come together and interact and the sum total of all of these interactions is what society really is Outside of laws and governments and whatever the mandates of states might be Yeah, these are
1: anarcho-capitalists. So (laughs) so, Some people are not uh, big fans of this idea. Some people like they'll die on the sword for anarcho-capitalism. Uh, free market anarchy is a much better term for it. But this is this is the flavor that Lysander Spooner and Benjamin Tucker were developing in America. This is sort of the right-wing anarchy uh, based on economic freedom. And but we have to be careful here because a lot of people think of this like, oh, this is this is what allows for the accumulation of wealth. These are just people that want to get super rich and take over the world. No, actually, when you read the writings of Lysander Spooner, Benjamin Tucker, or any of these so-called like you know right wing anarchists, they actually warn that the accumulation of wealth mm-hmm. would be the end of an anarchist society, and right? and that's why uh, they supported the idea of like antitrust laws, and that you can't you can't allow the the accumulation of too much wealth in Mm -hmm. a few hands because then you just create a new nobility and then you'll have another series of revolutions and that'll set back the entire plan of anarchy.
2: Well, we got to always remember that anarchy is not only concerned with tearing down governments. Like we kind of said this at the beginning that anarchy is not about creating chaos or revolution, but anarchy is about um, creating true human freedom. And remember, there's three enemies, not one. It's not just the state. It's the state, the church, and the mob. And if any of those get power, then they become tyrants. Like, that's the point of anarchy. It's not good enough to just say, like, well, we got to eliminate the state. Well, what does that do for the mob? What is a mob without a state? Like, you know, any any kind of centralization of power, whether it's economic, theological, or governmental, is going to create a nobility class, like you said, which tends to enforce laws, put themselves above other human beings, and create situations of massive inequality. And, you know, human beings are essentially unequal like we have different characteristics we have different strengths and skills but to widen that gap to the extent where there is a a class of people that hold themselves so far above human being like regular human beings that they start telling other people what to do that should be opposed by anarchists in any setting whether it's government whether it's the mob whether it's in the market whether it's in the church that should always be opposed
1: the anarchist is not trying to destroy government
2: they're trying to decentralize
1: government um anarcho capitalism or free market anarchism um, could it work i think it could work as well as any of the others and i think really these these six different systems that we just kind of mapped out all have sort of a masonic taste to them i think the the eco the egoist anarchism we kind of see that in masonry that your own self development like this is your journey you need to work on your own stone you don't need to be preoccupied about other people. When you're doing ritual, It's not you're not there to judge or correct other people. You're there to care about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, anarcho-feminism is definitely something you find in, in co-masonry. Uh, this idea that the patriarchy and the matriarchy need to be evened out to 50-50 so that one does not control the other. Anarcho-primitivism. Well, I mean, masonry, what do we do? We look at the stars. I mean, we have a celestial canopy above. Mm -hmm. We follow nature. We follow nature. So I think, you know, not to this extreme sense of going back to uh, the hunter-gatherer time, you know, pre-agriculture, but this idea that we need to connect with nature and and, and go back to our primitive roots in order to move forward, I think is in masonry. Uh, Anarcho-naturalism, I think, is... Yeah, I mean, not the nudism, but, uh, but this idea that we, you know, that we need to consider the animals, well, the plants, like, you know, free love, not so much. But the idea that we should all love each other to form the, the, the brotherhood of universal, mm. um, of, of the universal brotherhood of mankind, I think it's
2: definitely there. Well, I think from a philosophical point of view, nudism in the sense of like not clothing ourselves in artificiality. There is a tendency in modern society to kind of attach our identities to things that aren't really rooted in nature, that aren't real, so to speak. Putting on masks. Putting on masks. And in and, and masonry, we you know we become officers of a lodge. We we take on roles. In order to teach ourselves about what is real, not to kind of hide away from the world or or to, you know, clothe ourselves in an identity that doesn't relate to reality, but to go deeper into reality, to to take on archetypes and to really kind of develop our character that way and not um, kind of suppress our own character behind these artificial clothes, so to speak.
1: Free market anarchism? Again, I think we find this in, in Freemasonry and, and may not be with money, so to say, but with ideas. I mean, I think in Masonry, there's this idea of the free market of, of ideas. You know, we come to share Um, our insights, our ideas, our concepts, you know, Masonry is a think tank, you know, and there's a free market. People can take what they want, leave behind what they want, reject what they want. But there's this, there's this, the market of ideas and there's a, there's a, an intercourse and exchange by all its members in a way that cannot be described other than by sort of economic terms. You know, it's, it's Adam Smith's invisible hand, so to say, that guides the interaction of ideas and concepts in the craft.
2: I think it's especially important in co-masonry specifically. Like in many Masonic obediences, discussions of religion and politics in Lodge are expressly disallowed. You know, you can kind of equate this to a state enforcing some kind of economic regulation or, or tax, so to say. In co-masonry, we have a true free market of ideas. All ideas are on the table as long as this the discussion around them can be carried out with civility there are no topics that are barred from entering this market. there's no taboos our our market is truly open in terms of in terms of what ideas can be discussed anything can be discussed as long as it is undertaken with a sense of brotherhood and solidarity but to exclude any one thing from the market Really does do the market as a whole a disservice because not all possibilities have been entered into, and therefore not all manifestations are available.
1: Well, and the other aspect of, of free market anarchy is the idea that everything should be done by contract, that everything is volunteer. So, exchange of information, joining an organization, leaving an organization—I've already discussed—that's that's all under this sort of free market idea that. There is no coercion and you need to enter into a contract, which what are obligations in Freemasonry? They're mm-hmm. contracts that you make with the great architect of the universe to act and be a certain way and to protect the the fraternity and, and to guard against the trespasses of your brothers.
2: Well, and finally, I think the most kind of the most Masonic version of anarchism, you could, well, they're all Masonic in a sense, but really like Christian anarchism and its veneration of God's law above man's law is not only very... Uh, anarchistic it's very masonic masonry recognizes the authority of the supreme power above everything else Mm -hmm. that is the most important it's the most high like that's what we obey not you know man's man's laws when they agree with that but when they disagree we oppose them masons have been on the front lines fighting against tyranny throughout history for this reason that there is something more powerful than human beings something wiser than human beings something that we really do owe our allegiance to, not in a temporal sense, but in, in the sense of the eternal and the unchanging. Let's go into Proudhon now. Let's get into, into co-Masonry. Because I
1: think anarchy has influenced co-Masonry uh, in ways that I think a lot of people don't realize. So Proudhon was uh, a member of the Grand Orient of France and um, he, he was the first one, like I said, to call himself an anarchist. You know? And he wrote several books. You know, One is What is Government? Another one is What is Property? Um, his ideas aren't so far-fetched in many ways. Uh, he is working to create a society without coercion in the midst of the formation of the Second Empire of France. In the midst Napoleon of a, a, a lot of coercion. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of coercion. And it's not easy. And, and he will... Um, He'll be attacked. He'll be imprisoned. A lot of these anarchists are in prison. Nobody's a real fan of them uh, in terms of of tyrants. But Proudhon has some very interesting ideas. And I think we should start with something um, that he wrote from the book What is Government, which he identifies the problem precisely. Brother Axel, take it away.
2: To be governed is to be watched, inspected, spied upon, directed, law-driven, numbered, regulated, enrolled, indoctrinated, preached at, controlled, checked, estimated, valued, censured, commanded by creatures who have neither the right nor the wisdom nor the virtue to do so. To be governed is to be at every operation, at every transaction, noted, registered, counted, taxed, stamped, measured, numbered, assessed, licensed, authorized, admonished, prevented, forbidden, reformed, corrected, and punished. It is, under pretext of public utility, and in the name of the general interest, to be placed under contribution, drilled, fleeced, exploited, monopolized, extorted from, squeezed, hoaxed, Robbed, then at the slightest resistance, the first word of complaint, to be repressed, fined, vilified, harassed, hunted down, abused, clubbed, disarmed, bound, choked, imprisoned, judged, condemned, shot, deported, sacrificed, sold, betrayed, and to crown all, mocked, ridiculed, derided, outraged, and dishonored. That is government. That is its justice and its morality.
1: Well, that kind of sums it up, doesn't it? I mean, that's it, <laughs> that's the argument. It's 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 a wonderful piece of rhetoric, but I, it, it clearly, in my mind, kind of shows the problem with the state that, you know, we we have surrendered certain you know uh, freedoms to gain security. But what what really is that security? You know, the moment you step out of line, you are fined. You're vilified. Um, you could be oppressed by the police. You'd be thrown in jail. If you don't follow a series of prescribed rules, there is a consequence. And that consequence comes from the use of
2: force, right? Well, I think anarchists are very good at separating the ideal of government from the reality of government. Like, the ideal of government is that, you know, we live in these free republics where our votes matter and where we can influence the course of our rulers and the decisions they make over us. But if we look at the 20th century, for example, like, what is the reality of government? The reality of government in the 20th century is hundreds of millions of people killed at the hands of their own government, whether in wars or by repressive policies. Like the Government's track record uh, is it's, not it's great. It's not
1: good. And thats I think you make an excellent point because when we look at the Holocaust,
2: the great leap forward that killed
1: supposedly 50 million uh, Chinese, when we look at the oppressions of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, we look at... Uh, the Roman Empire, we look at the Grecians, we look at any state, like all the great massacres were a result of their decisions, right? When did a small free society destroy a bunch of people's property and murder a bunch of innocent people? No, it's always at the command of the state that there is atrocity.
2: Or the church or the mob. We, we can't forget the other three, the other two of the three enemies of freedom. It's not just the state. It's the state, the church, and the mob. Those three collective powers are behind almost all atrocities throughout history. Any genocide, any purging of enemies, any, you know, the terror, the reign of terror in France. These are, it's either the mob, the church, or the state. One of those three collectivist powers is responsible for human atrocities. So how do we gradually create an anarchist society? I I think here's
1: where Perdon has uh, an excellent idea. So his aim was to to create a state gradually by elevating the consciousness of people, by decentralizing the state. And the way he would do this is by um, the term federation, which... This is not a common term used amongst male craft masons because they have grand lodges, but it's it's similar in some ways. So in in Le Droit which as universal members of universal comates we come from, Le Droit Humain, Le Droit Humain essentially comes from the Grand Orient. There's there's some small orders in between, but this is not a history lesson on that. I believe Le Droit was heavily influenced by Proudhon and by Louis Michel and the other anarchists at the time because they set up a structure that essentially Um, it starts by creating federations, and then within federations you have lodges. And the key here is they say that a lodge is autonomous from another lodge. So each lodge is sort of independent, but working together towards a common goal. But no one lodge can affect another lodge. Very similar to the concept of the United States, in which the states are sort of separate from one another, but, but without such a strong federated
2: government, right? Well I think it's interesting because if we look at the the craft model of masonry it's these um it's a series of lodges but they're they're under the authority of a single lodge in the form of a grand lodge like it's a kind of like like very similar to a state and a, it's kind of like franchise capacity to take on territory like a grand lodge is is this kind of nationalistic organization that licenses or franchises other kind of derivative forms of that same nation but it's a very like top-down model whereas in a federation it's 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 a conglomeration of equals that are autonomous to one another that do not exercise any kind of direct authority but are bound together by common culture as opposed to um, kind of more coercive allegiance so this concept of federation for for Proudhon was was
1: very important because he's like, How do we how do we decentralize the state? How do we bring about anarchy? He's like, Well, what we need to do is is we need to respect what people already think, but to isolate them in their own municipalities, their own little groups, but working together. So if we create a more federated society, that creates um, the apparatus of unity, but at the same time it decentralizes power. So the way he saw government was a government should be strong and centralized at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then over time, as, as a nation expands, as as, the, as humanity expands, it would become more decentralized and more more part of a federation where you would have all these sort of autonomous groups – uh, without armies, without police, working together. Mm-hmm. Um, and and over time, they would become less and less powerful, and the people would become more and more powerful. But through this ga- gradual nation, you wouldn't have revolution, you wouldn't have mobs running around, you wouldn't have the, the chaos of you know just removing the apparatus of state overnight, because if the government disappears overnight, people freak out, there's going to be chaos. That's, I think we've seen that as a fact. But in his system, it's done slowly, and this is a concept we find in Lettre Humaine, which by extension, universal co-masonry, This idea of federation. So within within masonry we can have we can be practicing many rites: the French rite, uh, emulation ritual, Memphis Museum. Um, it doesn't really matter. Like all these different rites can be practiced by different lodges. Each lodge is its own sort of autonomous entity that develops its own flavor and approach to Freemasonry, which is unique from other lodges. Mm-hmm. While the Grand Lodge system in North America, it's like, you know, each Grand Lodge has their, you know, prescribed ritual and the prescribed way of doing things. Everything is very centralized, It's very dogmatic. In co-masonry, it's quite the opposite. We, we tend towards liberty. We tend towards the idea that, you know, in the diversity of ritual, in the diversity of people, of having men and women, having people of all sexual orientations and preferences, um, that we are a stronger entity by the power of federation. And that's why we call it the United Federation of Lodges, where we can have many lodges spread throughout the globe, different rituals, different ideas. Some may be scientific lodges. Some might be esoteric lodges. Some might be charitable lodges. But in the end, it's that diversity that creates the strength. And and, and really, when it comes down to it, as we expand globally, our organization will become decentralized. We want to keep everyone huddled together in a unity. But the lodges will take on more power and, and 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 be stronger as time goes.
2: Well I believe it's Proudhon who famously said, uh, in in the matters of making boots, refer to the bootmaker. And that kind of like encapsulates this idea of decentralization and seeding authority back to where it's most useful. Like the 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 smaller the unit of sovereign power becomes, the more um, the more connected to its immediate problems it can be. So as you centralize power and accumulate power in a specific geographical location or even like a specific ideological location by, by kind of eliminating these uh, points of diversity that you expressed, like it becomes more and more removed from the actual reality of any particular situation and becomes less and less able to react to the world as it manifests rather than how it's expected to manifest. So like very large monolithic structures of authority cannot actually respond quickly to changes in the world. Whereas decentralized federations will deal with the problem because they'll deal with it as it exists where they are, as opposed to like the problem as a totality in, a, in an ideological sense. Like when you allow authority to be exercised by the people that need to exercise it, then you have the best result. This is why, like, the, the army doesn't have the general command every single battle. They, they have a structure of authority that cedes that authority to the people actually fighting.
1: People making decisions on the ground in the moment that something has to be decided. I mean, if you're waiting for a command from a higher up for hours, you've lost the battle already.
2: Well, and they're all united by the general kind of unity of we want the U.S. Army to win this conflict. How that happens is up to the individual commanders at, that, at those specific levels of decentralized authority. And the comasonic approach is the same. We work to the perfection of humanity. What is that going to look like in America or you know, a state within America as opposed to Argentina? Those are going to be different things. Like different countries have different populations and different cultures. So how we achieve that work is going to be dependent on decentralizing the decision-making authority so that we can actually cope with the situation.
1: Well, these monolithic structures you're talking about, that's male craft masonry. I mean, its I, I, they haven't embraced any change in hundreds of years. So you have these grand lodges that, you know, there's one prescribed ritual, one way of doing things. You know, we're here to, to give money— Yeah, to the public and, and, you know, people of a more esoteric bend aren't very welcome in a lot of lodges. Instead of embracing the diversity of different types of lodges, Mm -hmm. that would strengthen their position. That would get more people on their side. Recruitment would be up. uh, Donations would be higher. Their projects would be furthered quicker because they would have the resources and the manpower to do them. But instead, what you have is a stagnant, monolithic, tyrannic system. And so what Proudhon proposes through the power of federation, a concept that we have adopted in co masonry is international expansion, and as we evolve, we decentralize. And the lodges are empowered. Centralization is only important at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And if you look at history, it's the same way. So we come from the hunter-gatherer period, very, very decentralized, right? We don't even have civilization. Then we develop civilization. It becomes very centralized. But now that we have learned about civilization, now that we've learned about the pitfalls, now that we have gained experience and wisdom and understanding, Mm -hmm. civilization must become more decentralized. And I'll give you an example. Perdon's concept of federation is the European Union. Nobody would call it an anarchist experiment, but that's exactly what it is. So the European comes in after World War II you know in the in the in the, in you know after this this massive devastation by the nazis uh there is a foe which is communist russia the soviet union and what do they do they they're like let's unite so what do they do they tear down their borders you know between france and england and germany and italy they take down the borders and make it easy to trade they make it easy to travel they make it easy to exchange ideas and now they've become a more powerful hub but that's because The states have decentralized and the European Union is not a huge centralized apparatus like the American federal government, right? Mm -hmm. So their experiment's working. I think, you know, England leaving, you know, Brexit is a real detriment actually for the future of England and for the future of the European Union because together they would have been stronger. Now England, you know, with its empire gone and now it has exited the European Union Where's 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 the England where's the future of England? It's by itself, it's isolated, it's more powerful in a federation.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it, it speaks to this kind of like, you know, law of nature that humans are more powerful when there's more than one of them. This is like this has been ingrained into our societies from from pre-agricultural times, from far deep into the Stone Age. Like we recognize from a very early very very early evolutionary point that we are pack animals we work together in order to overcome obstacles now as we kind of develop civilization and we're we're more able to express the individual through the kind of the advent of leisure time and of knowledge and the creation of knowledge in general, like we've become more individuated, and that's good. Like having specialization and people that are able to carry out kind of esoteric explorations into the world, like that benefits everybody. But in order to preserve that, in order to kind of like provide the um, the safety net that allows for specialization and civilization, we need this kind of federation. That both preserves individual liberty, but also reinforces collective strength. Like the areas where collective strength benefits humanity are preserved in a federation with these kind of like overarching, unifying philosophies that bring us together in times of need. But when times are not needful, when there is not this kind of outside stress, then we can decentralize authority to allow individuals or smaller collective units to express themselves and those expressions themselves are kind of beneficial to the whole that's what moves us forward like having the friction between ideas um, that's what advances culture but what's interesting about federation you know especially in the example of the european union but also in like if we take the example of the united states which is kind of along the same lines decentralization and federation kind of leads also to a evening out of the good ideas one of the one of the best examples i can look at in american history is the idea of gay marriage right we we can agree that marriage equality was a good idea for civil society this idea that everybody should be able to engage in this institution was a good idea but it took a kind of, it took a few like you know progressive states to go ahead and legalize it before that idea was kind of caught on to by more and more states and as the critical mass increased you eventually had well a federal declaration like okay this is going to be legal in all 50 states you know, and how you feel about it, that's that's your business, but legally it's going to be available to everybody. Another great example is the legalization of marijuana. As one it took a couple of states to be kind of out ahead of the rest of the pack in, in restoring that liberty, but as other states saw the benefits that it brought, that effect kind of spread out across the Federation. And and federations have a tendency to spread good ideas.
1: That's why you when you look at the Catholic Church or other sort of monolithic structures. There's not a lot of change going on because the individual branches or churches, uh, the diocese, they don't have a lot of creativity. You know, Everything is basically dictated by the Vatican in terms of the Catholic Church. What you want to do is empower your branches because, like you said, you get one good idea in one place, then all the other branches are like, oh, that's a great idea. We should do that. And you don't have to force them to do it. You don't have to impose a law. It's just by nature, once one person does it and it works, everyone's like, I want to do the same thing. You know, humans evolve, um, animals evolve, plants evolve, you know, along the sort of the, the idea of Darwinism in the same way that like, you know, once there's a mutation in, in a species and it's favorable to, to their survival, then that trait expands in that species until it mm-hmm. becomes normal, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the idea of federation is the same way. As long as we're not murdering and destroying each other and being dogmatic and imposing our will by coercion, then good ideas will spread naturally. Right? And the more decentralized you are, the faster the spreading, the faster these ideas are coming up. So if we want to quicken evolution. We want to become more of a federation, decentralize over time, and allow good people to come up with ideas and spread those ideas. And that kind of leads into to the second part of Proudhon's idea that you have the individual on one hand and you have the state or the government on the other hand. But there's a third component to civilization, which is civil society. That there's there's all these organizations in between, uh like Freemasonry, um, like the Elks, the the Oddfells, you have civil say, you have nonprofit organizations, you have the Red Cross, you have the Rotary International. These are all groups that are not they're not part of the government, but they're more than just an individual. They're mm-hmm. they're they're something in between, and that really that's the bridge to anarchy. If you get people to organize in sort of fraternal society, then fraternal society can create the rules and, and the obligations necessary to guide people towards freedom. Because you join these societies because you want to, and then these societies work with one another towards the goal of empowering people, educating people, feeding the poor, uh, coming up with new ideas scientifically, religiously, philosophically, the government never really does anything that well, you know and it probably is a necessary byproduct of human history, but will we always need one? I say no.
2: Well, what you're saying sparked a couple of thoughts in my mind. like it's interesting you know how like we were saying earlier like Freemasonry is an example of a non-coercive society. Like it, it is a it is a functioning voluntary system by which social, Um, social actions are carried out. Like, masonry has a government. It is a society. It collects money to do certain things. Like, it it performs all the functions of a government in a non-coercive fashion. And so what civil society is, whether it's masonry, whether it's the Odd Fellows, whether it's libraries, cultural institutions... um,
1: The YMCA. Exactly. Like,
2: all of these kinds of things, like, these aspects of society that are non-coercive. Like, like in a non-coercive anarchistic society, I presume you would have libraries, you would have trade associations, you would have universities, you would have hospitals, you would have medical organizations, you would have research organizations, and you would have fraternal societies. Like all of these things are, are kind of the, the precursor that are training human beings to become able to live in a, in a non-coercive society. Like, like, again, we were kind of saying like, it's the bridge, it's It's the the bridge bridge
1: of the individual towards anarchy,
2: because it shows us that we have the capacity to be social animals without recourse to violence. Like, like we were saying earlier, like, everybody kind of already lives an anarchistic lifestyle, except when they have to interact with the state, which is this coercive element in our lives. Like we already kind of have the knowledge we need. Mm -hmm. Civil society furthers that knowledge it develops well, that knowledge
1: i would challenge anybody listening to us right now to, to take a moment think how often do you interact with the government right the federal government now mind how about your local government like how, how how often do you interact with with the federal government i could tell you that i have no interactions other than i go vote every four years for the president every couple of years i vote for a senator Um, And
2: you pay your taxes every day.
1: And I have to pay my taxes, but I don't interact with my federal government. You know, like, yeah, I read the news. I feel through the media that the federal government is all powerful and important, but really on a day to day basis, I'm here at work. I go to my Masonic Lodge. Uh, I interact with people in my community. I go over to my friend's house. We have a barbecue. I go to a restaurant. I go to a bar. I go to the bookstore. I go to the library, right? Like ninety-nine percent of my actions are free of the government. I know it's over there. I know its laws are important to be followed, but I don't follow the laws of the nation because I'm scared of them. I follow them because they're just common sense. You know? Yeah, I might speed from time to time, but you know, that's not a big violation. But you know, my, my local power, my local gas, water. Those are all deliver, diver, delivered, excuse me, not from the federal government, but by local businesses. You know, everything I need is from other people. And they're doing that not because they're scared. You know, people make products and, and provide services and there's, you know, hospitals because people form these civil institutions. This, this, this part of life that's in between the individual and government. and And again... Yeah, we need national defense. But how often do we need national defense? Every moment? Are we are we being invaded at every turn? No. I mean, we don't. I mean, I think that our our belief in the in in the necessity of the state is overrated and and, and it's been a lot of propaganda that's been fed to us that does that. I am more involved with my Masonic order than with the government.
2: Well, I think one of the important functions of civil society, too, is, is to kind of replace the notion that is pervasive in, in, the, in the free market ideologies that the profit motive is the only motive that human beings are capable of possessing. And that's an important thing to refute because for the most part, like most of the time, I may, maybe it's more evenly split, but human beings are equally capable of being motivated to do certain things when there's not a profit involved. Like when you're not making, like we do a lot of things for our order because we believe in the principles of the order. And many people do many things because their church tells them it's a good idea or their own religious studies tell them it's a good idea or because they believe in certain things about civil society. Very rarely do people do things because the government told them it's a good idea. That's that's really not a strong motivation in people's life. What's a strong motivation tends to be either their fraternal society their church or their religion or some kind of civil philosophy A
1: church is fraternal society yes you know it it has a different emphasis but it's it's still it's 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 Mm -hmm. a a brotherhood it's it's uh it's a solidarity
2: but for the most part people's motivations are either to provide a product to secure financial success for themselves or to use those resources to do things that they believe in beyond profit. And that's what civil society is very important to do, is to keep us from turning into a bunch of avaricious like reptiles that are just trying to extract money from one another.
1: Yeah, I, I also reject the idea that the only motive is money. I mean, for some people it is. For other people it's, it's God. For other people it's their families or their researches or their sports. I mean, there's a million motivating factors. Money is not the only motivating factor. I think it's very dangerous for, to presume that. And that kind of leads us into our 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 next anarchist here, which is Louis Wazou. Louis Wazou is one of the founding members of Co-Masonry in North America, and he was originally an anarchist. Um, he didn't always stay an anarchist because um, he led a lot of fights against uh, the authorities in this country and in France to to gain rights for the workers. This is this is a time in history. This is the early 19th century where people are getting abused. Early 20th century. Oh, sorry. 20th century. Where they're getting abused, uh, you know, working long hours, hazardous conditions. And, you know, he's, he has a printing press and he is uh, considered amongst anarchists, not like top tier, but probably second tier. And his inspiration probably comes from Louis Michel, who. Presumably became initiated in La Joy Humain in 1904. Now she dies in 1905, and I want to make this point because you know typically masons are always trying to say like, oh look how masonry influenced society. I think in this case the anarchists influenced masonry, mm-hmm. particularly co-masonry, mixed masonry. Uh, the the institutions of of male craft masonry are still stuck sort of in a. In, in this mindset of monarchy, frankly.
2: Well, one of the benefits of being a fringe order is that you're much more able to kind of distill and, and um, assimilate these more fringe ideas. You, like, like we were saying earlier, we're more decentralized, so we can assimilate these ideas quickly into the philosophy mm-hmm. of Masonry. Like To us, there's room in the philosophy of Masonry to adapt to the world. It is not a, a monolithic structure that cannot be changed in any way.
1: And so co-masonry, in in my opinion, this is not stated in the ritual, so nobody misquote me over Hmm. here, but I I believe that that co-masonry is trying to work towards a more anarchistic society, one without coercion, one where civil society has a greater importance. And when we look at people like Brother Louis Wazoo, like Brother uh, Louis Michel, when we look at Brother Proudhon, these people are inspirations. They have allow the craft of masonry to evolve to its next level. I think male craft masonry was instrumental in the age of revolution Mm. in overthrowing uh, the tyranny in the colonies, the tyranny in Central America, South America, the Philippines, and all these different places, right? But in the end, it's now going to be co-masonry's job to fight the next revolutions. And those will not be revolutions with blood and iron. They're not going to be fought with guns and cannons and bombs. They're going to be fought... Through intellectual discourse, where the society needs to be better educated in, look, you can do these things yourself. You must, you must polish your own ashlar. You must become the instrument of your own change. And I think where mailcraft masonry has sort of come to the end of its usefulness there, because it's not, it doesn't include everybody. It doesn't want to go down the road. The road of, of federation. It doesn't mm-hmm. want a federation. It wants to play this jurisdictional game of, oh, I don't recognize your Grand Lodge and I don't recognize you. Well, that destroys the concept of federation. In federation, you have to respect your neighbors even if you disagree with them, because it is the key word here is solidarity. Okay? And mm-hmm. and I think Proudhon says that liberty is solidarity, and solidarity is liberty. And in co-masonry, we say that it is the moral doctrine of co-masonry. Excuse me. The the moral doctrine of co-masonry is solidarity. This is a very interesting concept, solidarity. It's very anarchistic, it's what forms the federations, it's what allows the state to diminish, and it's a key word in co-masonry, but it's not necessarily a key word in male craft masonry. Their key word is charity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important aspect of life, but Right now, we need to work towards solidarity.
2: Well, anarchism is essentially a philosophy at its foundation of equality. It is the most radical philosophy of equality ever to be conceived. Like, anarchy starts from the presumption that all human beings are absolutely free and sovereign individuals. No matter what kind of... um, exterior trappings might kind of define their circumstances or their character. Human beings are deserving of the same essential rights to life and liberty. So solidarity is kind of like the encapsulation of those ideas, that anarchy is the only philosophy that provides a home for total human equality. And and really, it recognizes that the only form of society that can truly be called civilized is one that's founded in this essential equality.
1: Well, I love what you're saying, Brother Axel, let's take it to the next level. I would ask the listeners to think about what you think is the greatest injustice in society, okay? Like, right now, there's a lot of riots because of George Floyd, and think about it. So, you know, there's this idea that, that white people have this sort of monopoly on power, right? And therefore, minorities are being oppressed. Well, how do you fix that? Well, the anarchists would say, don't attack the white people because you're just going to create an enemy and further bloodshed. You can't force them to think differently. But you can slowly start decentralizing their power so that it becomes equal with all the other groups. They're no longer majorities or minorities. Mm -hmm. There's just different groups operating side by side in solidarity. Anytime you attack the problem with force, you create resentment in opposition on the other side, it's decentralization. So, if we want to decentralize so-called white power, then you need to use your 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 words, your you know the, the power of the pen, to convince people that this power must be decentralized. If you look at other injustices like, um, uh, you know, police brutality, there's too much power uh, on behalf of the police. What do you do? You decentralize the police, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, one concept there is not to have. Uh, militarized police, to get the federal government out of there. The, another idea is to get rid of city police and just let the county sheriffs take care of it. That decentralizes it. Therefore, they're not as powerful, right?
2: Yeah. The, I mean, the true solution that lies at the, at the heart of all injustices and all of these problems is decentralization. It, it ultimately comes down to, like, it always is going to revolve around the fact that One group of people that does not represent whatever community is having power wielded over it Mm -hmm. is wielding the power over that community. Exactly. The answer to that is always going to be decentralization. Take the power away from the people that are not directly impacted by the exercise of that power. Like what you're talking about earlier with like how municipal uh, municipal uh, utilities are served. Well, it's, it's served by the people that are in that community because they're the same people that are drinking that water, that exactly. are using that gas, that are using that electricity. Like all of the solutions to all of these problems stem from decentralization because the people that are actually being affected by the problems know how to solve them. And and anarchism is an empowering philosophy in that sense. It says that human beings can solve their own problems. We do not have to resort to immoral philosophies of violence and force in order to fix our problems. The only thing we need to fix our problems is the human ingenuity that has gotten us to this point in the first place. So if we just free up that ingenuity, then we will see the human species flourish into the power that it is supposed to become.
1: And this was the concept of the co-Masonic anarchists like Louis Wazoo, right? It's, the idea is, look, malecraft masonry has a place. You want to have lodges that are only male? Good for you. You want lodges that are only women? Good for you. You only want a lodge for black males? Fine. The problem here is that we need to view each other as equals. Mm-hmm. So if all Masonic obediences, regardless of intent, work together, in sort of a federated way, then we would advance all our goals more quickly. But while male craft masonry doesn't recognize co-masonry or feminine masonry, they have a monopoly on power. They can say to you, oh, you're not a mason because you don't have a charter from the Grand Lodge of England. That's absolute nonsense. Mm -hmm. That's a Ponzi scheme. That's a way to enforce their power. That is a monopoly of force. Not the force of a gun, but the force of validity, they're saying you're not a mason unless we say you're a mason. Mm-hmm. That's nonsense. So if we become more like continental Freemasonry, where there are lodges that are male craft masons, yeah, and I'll throw a story in here. I um I was visiting Paris and I attended a lodge called No Gods No Masters. No Gods No Masters is a famous anarchist cry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this lodge completely different. They don't follow any of the things that we do here in Co-Masonry. They drink in Lodge. They had a copy of The Little Prince as their volume of Sacred Law. Very different. But I felt like a brother in that Lodge. They treated me like one. And I left thinking, this is, this is what a wonderful experience that I had. It was, it was different. It's not my flavor of masonry, but it is masonry, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we need to decentralize these power structures of these, these monolithic North American masons who think they are the end-all authorities— They have a monopoly. They are trying to be the rulers over us. And I object to that
2: rulership. Well, the only way that this can really be like, it really comes down to like whether or not you care for this question to be settled or whether or not you want to preserve your own power. Like if if you believe in that system, like, well, then you're not really kind of open to a free exchange of ideas in this regard and really like if we examine the tenets in the philosophy of freemasonry like i don't know how we could come to any other conclusion that ideas should be freely debated like i i can't find anywhere in the in the many philosophies of freemasonry where the idea of restricting the free flow of ideas is enshrined in masonic principle that doesn't exist or it shouldn't exist if it does and it's a it's a direct contradiction to the ideas of liberty equality and fraternity
1: so, I think, you know, we're, we've been talking for a while here, but I think, you know, at the end here, I want to I throw in a new concept. You know, we, we've heard about the anarcho-capitalists, the anarcho-primitivists, the, the anarcho-naturalists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I would recommend we start with a new term, which is anarcho-spirituality or spiritual anarchism, which is an idea that in order for us to fix the woes of the world, first we need to fix the woes within us. You know, every time we encounter people... Uh, as Freemasons, we should, we should be watching ourselves. Why, why are we judging people? Under what criteria do we watch? How, why do we want people to think the way we want them to? Why aren't we happy with people being different than us? So I think this sort of spiritual anarchism is the root to the gradualism necessary to transform society into a true place of liberty and freedom, right? So it needs to begin with us, just like Masonry tells us. It begins with us. We must transform ourselves, just like through the degree system. We need to enter that chamber of reflection. We must reflect on ourselves. We must... We must root out all the dogmas and these conceptions where you know the, our obsessions with controlling people and controlling the events around us it's just like the stoics say we can only control ourselves
2: right i was just going to bring up that quote from our last episode you know he is a fool who wishes to reform the gods before reforming himself i mean that that, that encapsulates all of what you've been saying because we are society and th- and and this is something that is you know distinct to the anarchist perspective it's like Your nation, your government, your borders, your founding documents, that is not your nation. Your society is the men and women who make it up. It's the ideas that percolate within your society. It is the strength of your marketplace. It is the the unity of your ideals and the strength of your philosophy. That's what makes a society, not a government. Not a group of of elite people that consider themselves above everybody else and and uh, gifted with some kind of divine power to tell everybody else what to do. The the people that conflate themselves with gods, that's not your government. Your or it is your government. That's not your society. Your society is civil society. It's by the people, of the people, and for the people. That, that is that, that's where it comes from. That
1: statement right there is anarchy. That's saying that. What whatever apparatuses have been created are by the people and for the people. And if that, if that statement is not true, then there's a problem with your society because that means you live in tyranny because really anarchy is the purest form of democracy. Okay? Democracy is not me voting for a person to go to Congress and I ignore and they just vote on whatever they want. That's representative democracy. It's a step forward. True democracy is when we have input on all the decisions occurring around us but think about it just like a masonic lodge we can in our small community we can make those decisions we can be a part of everything going on as things get bigger and more centralized our voices are muted yes so what's the key keep everything small that doesn't mean there can't be cities but the cities need to be divided up to, to small little areas you know, of representation where people can go to their city councils. They can vote on things directly. We need direct democracy. We need direct interaction with all the affairs going on. But the bigger things get, the more centralized, that's an impossibility. In a nation of 350 million Americans, my voice is nothing. In a community of 100 people, my voice is nothing.
2: It's very large. It's heard. It's heard. And, and in America, in, in not America, in anarchy, there's the idea that. Um...
1: So I think we've been yapping for enough, brother Axel. <laughs> so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna end this up with a few ideas, and one is a, is, a, is a great quote by Emma Goldman, who's an anarchist. Um, quote: Anarchism stands for the liberation of the human mind from the dominion of religion, and the liberation of the human body from the coercion of property. Liberation from the shackles and restraints of government. It stands for a social order based
2: on the free grouping of individuals. Wow, what a great quote. This is a description of Freemasonry. Exactly. And, you know, this is one final point I'd like to make about Freemasonry is the idea— or not Freemasonry, but anarchy, but also Freemasonry. You know, what the anarchists realized is that if we start making moral concessions, then there is no moral end to the development of our society. You know, often very often when anarchists bring up ideas about how to organize society along these lines of, of freedom and individual liberty that's found in anarchy, it, you're you're met with like, well that could never work. How could you how could you That's make, a pipe dream. It's that's a, a fantasy. From, exactly. But but what can really never work, what can truly never work, is founding a society on immoral acts of violence. If your society is held together by the initiation of violence on peaceful people, then it will always be immoral. Anarchist looks to the future, anarchism looks to the future as an unknown, but as a glorious unknown, not an unknown to be feared and controlled and resisted. Anarchists look to the unknown as possibility and opportunity. And the founding kind of like the, the starting point of that philosophy is like, let us be moral to one another. And no matter what happens, as long as we obey moral principles, the result will be more. If you start from morality, you will end in morality. If you start in immorality, you will end in immorality. He who fights
1: with the sword dies by the sword.
2: Exactly. And the anarchists have always recognized this. So,
1: Freemasonry and anarchy. In our opinion, Freemasonry is anarchy. It wishes neither masters nor slaves. It wishes to free all people. And so Masons themselves are volunteers who have chosen to stand guard over the mysteries and to protect the way to freedom, the way to liberty and equality and fraternity. I think as Freemasons we must continue to fight against tyranny and dogmatism by both church and state wherever it's found. Those two must be relegated to a safe place where they don't have the coercion over people. They can't bend people to their wills. And that day will come. There'll be a day when there are no more masters, or a day when there are no more slaves, a day when truly there is universal brotherhood under the fatherhood of God. And when this day comes, each man will be his own king, with empire and dominion only over himself, over his passions, over his ideas, standing next to his fellow, a sovereign unto themselves.
0: Thank you for listening to Legends of the Craft. This podcast is purely the opinion of brothers Matthias Comcier and Axel Suvari and does not represent the official views of Universal Comasonry. Universal Comasonry is a Masonic order founded on the principles of liberty, equality, and fraternity that admits men and women without distinction of race, religion, or creed. For more information, please visit... Universal